0: You're listening to the Hard Men Podcast, reclaiming biblical masculinity in a world of softness. Well, welcome to the Hard Men Podcast. I am your host, Eric Kahn, and today we have a very special guest. We have Mr. Non Tenet from It's Good to Be a Man. Non, how are you doing today? I'm doing better than I deserve. Very good to hear. So now the first thing I want to ask you about today is you and Michael Foster are working on a book for Canon Press. First of all, when do you guys expect this to be hitting the shelves?
1: We're hoping it will hit the shelves this year, but we really don't have any more definite deadline than that because at the moment it's in the editing process. So what's holding it up at the moment is actually us. We have to get back to Canon with uh, all of the edits that they've requested. And once that's done, assuming that they're happy with everything, I believe the process will be relatively pain-free from that point. It'll be fairly streamlined, but it's still going to be a little while before, obviously, they can actually get the book into a format that can be sold and do all of the marketing and so on. So hopefully end of the year, um, we'll see.
0: That's awesome. And do you guys have, do you have a title and also related to that, just the purpose and kind of point of this book, what can people expect from it?
1: The title of the book is It's Good to Be Man. The subtitle, tentatively, our working subtitle, is How Clueless Bastards Can Take Dominion as Sons of God. So that kind of describes the the general purpose of the book. We want to be able to teach men what it means to be a man, why God made men as they are, and how a man who hasn't actually had any of that knowledge kind of instilled into him through the father that, you know, maybe he didn't have a father or his father was absent or his father was just the kind of clueless bastard as well that we're talking to and didn't raise him up as a man those kinds of men, how they can learn the basic principles required to take dominion as sons of God, how they can um, go from being relatively useless as men to being useful for the purpose that God has made them for.
0: Yeah, that's awesome. I want to ask you too, Nan, uh, just, I know you and Michael have been doing this for a while. Um, you've had the website, some podcast stuff, been really, really helpful. As you look at kind of how things have changed um, from, from when you started to now writing a book. What's kind of the lay of the land in the manosphere in, in this subject matter of biblical sexuality? And is that reflected, I guess, in the book, uh, some of the changes, some of the things you guys have learned, et cetera?
1: Well, in terms of the general lay of the land, I don't really have my ear to the ground in the same way that Michael does. Michael's kind of tapped into everything because he's a real people person. So he's involved with the 21 convention and all these yeah. other guys. You know, I, I don't really have any kind of knowledge of them. I would say, just from what I've seen, the impression that I get is that the traditional Manosphere, the kind of old-school Manosphere, has more or less collapsed into a bunch of bickering and inviting, hilariously looking like a lot of teenage girls, whereas a lot of what you see now in the manosphere 2.0, you might say, is a lot more mature and developed and presupposes a lot of the knowledge that previously was considered very revolutionary. So there isn't nearly as much PUA stuff, pick pickup artists and so on. Um, right. I'm sure that there are still a lot of forums devoted to that kind of thing and you still get products for PUA and that kind of thing. But in terms of what I would consider the manosphere, the kind of people who are talking about this kind of stuff at the moment, it's much more focused on how to be a, how to be a good man, not necessarily how to be a Christian man, because obviously there is a distinction between Christian manosphere and general manosphere, but yeah, there definitely is a much larger Christian presence. And there's a much more serious attitude towards masculinity as a, almost like a vocation, um, as a mission, rather than masculinity as just something that's kind of cool that you can play with and pick up chicks and have lots of sex. <laughs> right. So you'll notice that with 21 Convention, there was a big split over even the idea of, um, well, I'm not sure if it was within 21 Convention or if it was people associated with them, but there was a, a lot of uh, people got to loggerheads over the idea of whether it's good to be married or not, whether it's good to have have a family or not. And the very idea of being a patriarch does tend to presuppose that there are people that you're ruling over. So, you know, you see these people (laughs) claiming to be patriarchs that like, you know, weedy 20-year-olds or their single 40-year-old pickup artists. And you're not really a patriarch. You're not doing anything that a patriarch would do. You're just a guy who's figured out some sexuality stuff and has put it to use in his toolbox. It's not quite the same thing. That's more or less the extent of my knowledge. I don't have uh, my finger in as many pies as Michael does.
0: Yeah, absolutely. Uh, The other thing I want to ask you is just kind of general layout of the book, subject matter. What kind of topics are you guys uh, dealing with? I know you've done a lot of research. There's been a lot of writing um, and some emails, if people are following along, can kind of get a feel for what's in there. But if they're not following those emails, generally, what is this book about? And again, some of the key topics that you guys hit on.
1: The emails, we do include occasionally some excerpts from the book because we want to obviously whet people's appetites. And sometimes there's something in the book which stands alone quite well. And we think, you know, this would be helpful for men to read right now. So I wouldn't say that the, the weekly emails that we send out are particularly indicative. If you look at the, the content of the emails in total, they're not particularly indicative of what the book will be like. But occasionally we'll quote from the book in those emails. The book is a bit more systematic than the emails but it's not meant to be systematic in the sense that you know you see a lot of books come out in the manosphere most of the manosphere books that we've read have been basically trying to be blueprints that cover every single possible thing and it's like a paint by numbers guide to how to be a man and that's not really how we see god teaching us to be men in scripture right and it's not really how we see manhood actually working when you pick up manhood from your father. He doesn't teach you that way either. It's something that you you learn the principles and then you see how they're applied in practice and you start to just, um, you just get pushed into practicing them and seeing how they work. And when you fail, it's okay. And when you succeed, now you've learned something. So the book is, primarily it starts with why manhood matters, what God made man for, and how that got ruined. So it goes through the basic strokes of the fall and um, primarily links it back to the idea of dominion the, the right. fact that man's made for dominion then it kind of moves into how do we get to the point that we're at now and why is it that if man is made for dominion and this truth is contained in scripture why is it the church is the one place where dominion is least practiced where the men are the least manly so what's going on with that then we get into how we can take it back how, how can we regain manhood and that that's the basically the, the large second part of the book. So the bulk of the book after that setup is about how do you get back manhood? What are some of the key principles? What are some of the key uh, steps that you can take? So we talk about, for instance, some of the key duties of masculinity that we see in scripture. We talk about the way that those are connected with key virtues of masculinity in scripture. We talk about the way that you can combine those into what you might call traits of masculinity, which obviously are also found throughout history. You know like preparedness readiness that kind of thing and then we talk about gravitas and finally we talk about regaining manhood not being something you can do by yourself so you need to have there are basically two rails that you can run on run your train on um, as you're developing your mission so your mission runs on like two railway tracks one of those railway tracks is brotherhood or fraternity and one of those railway tracks is marriage So we put those two things last because obviously you need to learn to be a good man before you try to find other good men to hang out with. Otherwise, you might end up with the wrong crowd. You also want to be working on yourself before you try to get married because otherwise, you're going to make marriage a mission. But we don't want to. We don't want men to think that this is something you can do by yourself, which is, I think, kind of an implicit assumption in a lot of the Manosphere books that we've seen. Is here's. Here's the guide. Now go away into the forest, read it, and come back as a man. Well, that's not <laughs> right. how men are made. Um, so we wanted to be clear that the church uh, fraternity in the church fraternity uh, amongst other Christian men is really important. And finding a good wife, this is a huge point of contention. There are so many people in the manosphere now who think that there it just is no such thing as a good wife. You know, maybe in principle a good wife exists. Maybe somewhere out there there's a good woman, but in practice all women are whores. You know, so that's just flagrantly false, and the the very reason that we point out in a book in the book is um you, you get men really angry at women, really disgusted at them, and the the whole reason that women can be so bad is because they were made to be so good right Everything about the world that is the worst is a twisting of the thing that was meant to be the best, so men get really bad because men were meant to be good, um, men are the glory of God women. Uh, get really bad because women are made to be really good. They're the glory of man. And having a good wife is really a good thing. And we know that it's really a good thing because we have good wives.
0: Yeah, I think that's huge. And, you know, one of the things Michael's talked about, I've heard you talk about, and you guys have really incorporated into your writing, is sort of the practical element, right? Um, You know, kind of this idea that I know for me, a lot of the guys that I've dealt with through the show, it's like, I want another book on this. I want another book on this. Well, here you you guys are writing another book on it, but I'm guessing that that a lot of this has to be about practical. Like guys need to put this into practice. And so I'm, I'm curious in the book, how much of is it dedicated to sort of the practical aspects, competencies of masculinity?
1: Well, you know that we are very resolutely focused on producing content, which is actually useful to men. It's not something that is it goes into your mind, and then it doesn't come out of your hands. We had a few key purposes with the book, and one of them was it had to be something that would actually produce men who were men rather than just men who knew how to be men. There's a difference between knowing how and actually doing. Oh, So a great deal of it is focused on that kind of competence. And even the initial creation stuff um, where we kind of lay the groundwork there isn't as much immediate practical uh, application there, obviously, but it does set up the the way that you get that practical application. So it goes through, we talk about duties and virtues and traits, and we give specific examples of how you actually fulfill those duties. And then we talk about gravitas and specifically how do you develop gravitas? Right. Um, and, then we, and then fraternity and how, how do you identify the right men to be with and avoid the wrong men? And what do you do when... You find men trying to pull you down. What kinds of steps can you take to not let that actually get you down and to still keep going? And same with wives. How do you find a good wife? What's the difference between a good woman and a bad woman? Why does it matter? But um, the marriage one is it kind of truncated in a sense because we the last two chapters, well, the last chapter on marriage is really meant to be a chapter that primes you for the next book, which is It's Good to Be a Husband. So we're hoping to write another book on marriage specifically, because there's just so much that we could cover, but it doesn't fit in one book. If we were, if we wanted to write about, you know, how to have a good sex life, um, how to lead a woman well, how to find a good wife, even um, all of that stuff could easily fill a book itself. So it doesn't make sense to try to put it into it, put, create this massive book that no one's going to be feasibly able to finish we wanted to create something like a field guide, and it's better to have a field guide on a specific topic. Here's how to be a man. Okay, now here's how to be a husband. And third book, here's how to be a father.
0: Yeah, I think that's huge. If you try to get too much done in one book, it's like you just, it becomes where well, you can't really go in depth on anything. And, and so it it's really not helpful in that sense a lot of times.
1: It just never gets released because you didn't finish it.
0: <laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly. It just becomes this huge project um, that you never, as you said, you never complete. So, Non, you, you guys are planning, it sounds like, more books uh, after this. Is that right? We are. We are planning
1: several more books. We want this book to be part of a trilogy, so it's good to be a man, it's good to be a father. Uh, sorry, it's good to be a man, it's good to be a husband, it's good to be a father. And we want to also produce some other books as well. We're going to take some of the best email content that we've got and turn that into essentially a series of essays, a bit like The Rational Mail, but for Christians, and essentially a book that you can pick up and get some good, thoughtful stuff that will get you thinking and doing things on just a range of topics. So it doesn't have to be connected together. Just here's something on finance. Here's something on running a household. Here's something on doing a garden, You know, anything like that.
0: Yeah. Yeah. That's awesome. Oh, I want to ask you too. I know you guys, like I said, you, you've done a lot of research on this project. Were there any kind of watershed moments during that research, anything like as you've been writing, sifting through the material where you thought, wow, these are some new things that I'm learning or just stuff that's really crystallized in your thinking? Anything like that that happened during during this process?
1: There wasn't anything really new. There definitely were new connections that I made or connections that became clearer. The one thing that crystallized the most for us was the understanding that you need to have a really specific objective when we started the book, we wanted to basically be as helpful to men as possible. But we had too grand a vision of how to do that. We wanted to be able to tell them essentially everything that we knew. And we realized that we needed to focus in. And in order to be as helpful as possible to men, you need to start at the beginning. And so this book is basically just that: is Here's how to start. It's not how to even get halfway. It's not even how to get to be a husband. It's how to start being a good man. And once you've done that, then this, write another book on how to be a husband, how to be a father.
0: Yeah, yeah, I think that's, that's a really good point. Um, in terms of, I want to switch now to it's good to be a man and some of the content. I know one of the things that you guys have done is you've, you've dealt a lot with men, right? It's not just writing, it's not just producing podcasts and that sort of thing. But you've dealt with uh, actual real people in the real world. I'm curious, do you see trends there? Um, And if so, like, what are they? But I'm thinking, you know, pastorally in counseling people, you know, you'll counsel them and then you'll have like five times that the same issue comes up and you're like, wow, I think this is an issue. Is there any trends like that that you see as you're working with men on a continual basis?
1: Yeah, marriage is a big problem for a lot of men. A lot of men just aren't in marriages that they're happy with they feel like they've stalled. Often it's, you know, fairly dry marriage bed. And that's something which comes up a lot. And often it's related to just a general lack of dominion in their lives. Uh, you start to you basically give them really simple tips on here's how to just start taking an element of dominion. You know, start, are you fat? You, know, <laughs> you get people, oh, my wife's really fat. How can I, how can I get her to slim down? Well, are you fat? Like, well, I'm bigger than I'd like to be. Okay. <laughs> yeah, all Why right. don't you slim down? So that kind of really practical stuff is definitely a, a big thing on men's radar. And similarly, if you look at uh, website content, the the one article that gets the most traction um, just in terms of searches and people clicking through from searches is an article called Five Ways to Stopping Week. Oh, interesting. Yeah. So men are just, they're really looking for practical advice and they're also they're aware of their failings. They don't need to have their failings hammered in. What they need is clarity over specifically how they're failing and why. And the problem why that's causing the problem that it's causing. So understanding basically the psychology involved and then how they can take action to turn that around. So practical stuff like that is really where it's at. Um I think that's probably always been true, but Maybe more than before. Um, Maybe it's just that we've narrowed down our, our audience a bit more. We've kind of targeted things in, so we're just reaching the same kinds of people now. Not sure. It's difficult to tell how these ideas are percolating through society. I get the impression that society is a lot more red pilled than it was even a couple of years ago. That there are a lot of ideas that are now considered not insane, not necessarily mainstream, but People have heard of them before, whereas previously that would have just been completely under their radar.
0: Yeah, it seems like there's, uh, even in Christian circles, uh, I think it was like the Daily Geneva the other day posted like this, it was like a mural of all the people on Twitter, like the reformed upgrade. And, you know, it's like Foster was on there and some other people, you know, I can't remember everybody, maybe Adam, Adam? no, Adam Robles is not on Twitter anymore. But anyway, there was a whole group of people. And I remember thinking like, man, I don't know if five years ago if you would have had that many people that outspoken about, you know, everything from patriarchy to what's going on with the political situation and really outworkings of like post-mill theology and you know, stuff that honestly, the stuff that I've espoused um, is you can trace back to, you could read the Institutes of Biblical Law by Rush and you could read Andrew Sandlin stuff that was in little pamphlets that, you know, not many people were reading 20 years ago. I mean, and and we're reading it now and going, oh my gosh, these guys knew exactly what they were talking about. It's very prophetic to this situation. So maybe there is an upgrade uh, going on. One of the other things that uh, was in my mind as you we were talking about that, I think one of the most helpful things that you and Michael have done is like be very aware of the fact that... W- I grew up on this, which was men getting bashed by Mark Driscoll, men getting bashed by, how dare you little, little boys that can shave. (laughs) Yeah. And I I think like even pastorally, there was a time where fortunately I didn't, I I was young enough that I was like in eldership training and stuff like that. I wasn't pastoring when I was kind of in that mindset. And I'm grateful for that. But I look back on that and I think, Man, there was a lot of damage done. Um, And and you're absolutely right. Men need um, teaching, instruction. They don't need browbeating. But I'm curious, why was that such a prominent part, and why is it now even, of your ministry?
1: Primarily because of how it started. Michael wanted to do it's good to be a man because of the fact that he was aware that the situation between even his generation and the generation below him, the generation that was coming to him for advice in marriage, advice in dating, had changed dramatically. Yeah, And he was always focused not on there's some problem with men, but on how can I help these people to have good marriages and to get married to good women. And that was kind of the initial focus for him was – a practical and positive focus a pastoral focus and in my case because i came into it's good to be man during a cage stage where i had learned about patriarchy and i was all like gung-ho ah, ah, women bad blah, blah. you know the kind of classical <laughs> patriarchal nonsense because i came into it at that point and i realized i had enough self-awareness to realize that this was a bad trajectory right and michael was like let's be positive and i was like hey yeah let's be positive and so that became instilled, like ingrained into the, the culture of it's good to be man from the very beginning. It was always intended to be uh, a ministry dedicated to positively articulating and developing the doctrine of manhood from scripture and to turn it into a practical thing that men can use. So we never had any interest at all in bashing men. And we were always also uh, on the negative side, we were always... Michael said to me very early on I remember distinctly he said I want to burn feminism I want to burn feminism to the ground and that was also a key driving force was feminism is evil it is wicked it is anti-god it's anti-woon anti woman let us get rid of it so the the bashing that we do is of things that actually suck things that are actually evil rather than things that God made to be good and have you know been twisted or gotten off course or um, sinned Yes, you have to repent, but you don't beat someone over the head with their sin until they repent. You, you bring it to them, and if the Spirit of God is working in them, uh, you rebuke them and they turn. You don't have to continually harass them.
0: Yeah, I think it, it's been really helpful for me, too. I know as a father, um, you, know, you, you, you navigate this minefield. I've got teenage boys, and so just a host of issues that you guys have addressed— it, it's, it's been really helpful for me because it's like, look, these, my kids and other young men in the church that I'm working with, they need coaching. They need instruction. They don't need somebody to tell them how vile and horrible and heinous they are for looking at pornography. They they definitely need to know that it's sin and why it's destructive, but then they just need a practical battle plan for how to deal with it. Um, and, and, and I think that's one of the good things, like I've heard Michael talk a lot, a lot about, and this is reflected in your writing as well, but just like. Okay, yeah, that's a pretty common problem, and here's what you do. Um, so that's been really, really helpful, and I think it's a, it is a good tool for men. I want to ask you about one of the topics that it stuck out to me. I don't know if it's been one of the most popular, but that, that's the singleness is not a gift uh, concept. For people who are not aware of this, right, there was even dating back to Piper and Grudem's book, um on the complementarity of uh, biblical womanhood and manhood um that book starts shockingly about singleness and like the glory of singleness i grew up with that so i want to ask you maybe people who are not familiar with this subject matter why is singleness why was that an important issue for you guys to tackle
1: before I answer that, let me give you an analogy going back to the previous question, yeah. because I know I tend to talk in abstract generalities a lot, which is difficult for me to connect with. One of the principles we talk about in our book is the connection between physical pain and spiritual shame. Shame oh, is to the spirit as pain is to the body. Huh. If someone's hurt themselves, um, that's their body telling them they've done something wrong. If someone is ashamed, that's their spirit, their conscience, telling them that they've done something wrong. Now, if someone's gone and broken their leg, the thing that you come and do is you don't come and like stick your hand into it and just kind of knead it around a bit to emphasize how, how bad it is. Look how badly you did, man. Look how much you screwed up. Feel that pain. So if someone's done the same thing in terms of, you know, they've been looking at porn, they're ashamed. They know that it's right. wrong. You don't come and you rub that in and just kind of emphasize that shame as much as you can. You say, look, you're ashamed. You should be ashamed. You did something wrong. Here's how to fix it. Yeah. So it's, it's very much focused on being a healer, essentially. Um, you know, the, the sick need a doctor. They don't, they don't need someone to come and make them sicker. In terms of singleness, it makes me really angry, this idea that singleness is a gift. It is so contrary to the entire witness of scripture, which right. is fully concerned with first the fruitfulness of Adam and Eve, and then the fruitfulness of Israel, and then the fruitfulness of the church. And the idea that singleness is a gift is basically an idea that fruitlessness is a gift. It's certainly true that there are things you can do as a single which you cannot do as a married person. There is a specific place for singles in the church who can do particular tasks that cannot be done easily by married people. It gives them a particular opportunity. But that doesn't mean that singleness is a gift. It means that if you've been given the ability to not burn with passions that you need to marry, that's a gift. Um, celibacy is a gift, which you can use for the church. But singleness is a curse. Singleness in scripture is always a curse. Um the The inability to produce seed is a curse. And from the very beginning, Adam and Eve were created to be fruitful and to multiply. And... The very first thing that God says about the man, after all the good things, it is good, it is good, it was very good, it was very good, it was very good, it is not good that the man be alone. Right. And so he makes him a helper who is meek to him. So this this idea that singleness is a gift has become endemic in the church because we live in a culture of singleness, a culture that celebrates fruitlessness in all kinds of ways. It's a culture that, um, it's not just one thing. It's not like, oh, well, we've, uh, we don't like marriage anymore, we want to just shack up and have sex. It's, right. it's not like that's an isolated thing. The whole culture is, um, from the center outwards, is steeped in this nasty brew of, I'm going to do what I want to do, and I'm an atomistic individual. And atomistic individuals can just kind of connect together if they want to, and they don't have to connect if they don't want to. There's no purpose to what they do. There's no thing that they have to do that they were made to do. They can just choose their own path. That's the fundamental principle behind everything, behind abortion, behind hookup hook up, yeah, hook culture, behind uh, the gay marriage, behind the desire to not get married, the, 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 the wisdom, as it were, that um, you should definitely have sex before you get married to know if you're compatible Uh, All of these kinds of things, uh, all of them come from this deep-seated, anti-God, anti-fruitfulness mentality.
0: Yeah, so maybe part of it is just the church and pastors following the world on this. I almost think, like, you know, Piper and Grudem, they're responding to feminism and everything they see. It was very telling, I thought, that they begin by, like, basically trying to appease the single people in the room. Um, obviously, that probably tells you that the single people in the room were a lot and maybe influential, and they saw that they had to uh, write about it. It's weird because that ends up being in the book sort of like like Piper talks about you can be a man without having like any actual real physical qualities or competencies, um which is pretty much the opposite of what I think you would say and what i what I've said on this on this podcast. But it's also interesting because I know. Uh, people, pastored people, uh, no people, you know, just in my own personal life, uh, stark raving feminist lesbians. And I'll never forget like the number of times, but there was one where I was talking to a lesbian and she was all depressed and everything. And I was like, what's wrong? And she said, yeah, deep down, she said, I'm lonely and I want a family. And I was like, wow, that's crazy. And then I'm going to draw a parallel to the singleness crowd. Most of the people that I see, like Christians who are like blogging about singleness, like especially young women, they were like, singleness is a gift. They were like desperate to get married. That was the reality. They were just trying to like make themselves content somehow in that season. And, and then, you know, I, I think they were more like the women in scripture who are barren. It was something that they had to endure, but they didn't like it. I mean, Ruth wasn't like, wow, this is great you know naomi um just these all these women in scripture sarah she wasn't like oh barrenness is a gift it wasn't a gift i mean it was a difficulty it was something to endure so i'm wondering do you see the, any change happening particularly with women um as as you've interacted with some of them it seems like at some point women are in, with feminism the lgbt stuff they're going to run into dead end roads and it, it their nature is going to come out right but I don't know if you see that happening any more than than it has in the past.
1: Yeah, I'm not sure. You definitely, obviously nature does, there's no way to keep nature down. If you look at all of the studies on happiness that have been done, the, the most unhappy people in the world are always the professional women in their 40s who have <laughs> no kids. Right. If you try to go down that path, it's going to end in misery because that's not the path God designed you to go down. But I don't know whether it's, um cause whether there's a lot of difference going on in the church in terms of uh, a recognition of that. Um, I think that probably it would depend on what you mean by the church. Because I think that if if we get down to it, what's happening in the church at the moment is the the fake unity, the appearance of unity, the false peace that's been kind of uneasily settled for the last several decades is coming apart quite rapidly for not just reasons of sexuality. Um, in fact, I would say that sexuality has taken a back burner to most of the issues now, You know, COVID and um, work culture and that kind of thing has really taken the forefront. But those things are all connected because if you don't actually believe in the sufficiency of scripture, as feminists don't, um, whether they be complementarians or egalitarians or just atheists, if you don't believe in the sufficiency of scripture, then you're not gonna believe in the sufficiency of scripture when it comes to the law of God Any more on you know civil matters or health matters, or or any more than when it comes to sexual matters. So what we're seeing is a splitting, a a clarity in the fault lines. The fault lines are becoming obvious, and they're causing these great rifts now, where churches that once looked faithful and conservative are being revealed to be unfaithful, and in fact they're conservative in a sense. Um, They have that secular conservative conservatism to them but they're not conservative in the sense that christians ought to mean which is that they're trying to conserve accuracy and fidelity to the word of god treating the word of right. god as actually sufficient for training in all righteousness that you'd be fully equipped um so i think that probably there is a larger gap between the women who now recognize that singleness is not a gift and, and are willing to actually say so quite loudly and the women who are still in denial, basically, and want to be in that world where singleness is a gift and where they can be feminists, there's there's not as much in between anymore because it isn't possible for there to be as much in between. To sit on the fence as the gap is widening is just a fall into the gap. So that's where I think we're currently at. And I think that that's going to continue probably to accelerate in the next few years.
0: Yeah, it seems like the um, one of the things that's happened is, at least in America, is the polarization has gotten more intense. And a lot of people have cried about this, but it's actually, I think, as you said, it's kind of been a good thing, because you know exactly where people stand. Um, it has also given faithful Christians opportunity to rally and band together. Exactly.
1: I wrote recently about how there are now two Overton windows. There used to be one Overton window that everyone kind of agreed on, and... You had the crazy people on the right and the crazy people on the left, and the Overton window was sort of in the middle. And then the Overton window sort of started stretching in both directions, and then it split into two. So now there's normal left, normal right, and both of those are crazy to each other.
0: Yeah, and it's interesting. I mean, in some sense, it's basically Twitter and Gab, you know? Um, Yeah. And it is interesting because I'm on both. I've made the move to Gab. I know you're on there as well. Um, but one of the things that's interesting is when you get into like the gab crowd, they're like a lot of the things they're like yes and amen on, but a lot of those people are not Christians. Um, it's kind of like tea party conservatism. Yeah. It always makes me think of like Doug Wilson said, conservatism without Christ is kind of like jumping out of a plane with you have the backpack, but no parachute. Don't ask you none too now about the another topic that you talked about, uh, which is the nice guy syndrome. Just explain what that is and why is that important for guys in the church today to have a grasp on that concept?
1: It's important because most guys in the church are nice guys. It's a default mindset that we're conditioned into. Nice guy syndrome is basically a, a kind of, what's way of putting this? It's like a guiding principle. It's almost like a, um, an, an autopilot that men go on to. It's like, this is my life script. And if I follow my life script, things will go well for me. And the life script is basically this. If I do what people want me to do exactly right, they'll like me and I'll be happy. Right. And that's essentially what a nice guy is. A nice guy is someone who thinks that if he just does everything right, if everyone um, likes what he's doing, then he'll get the things he wants. So, you know, if if I do all the things that my wife wants, then she'll give me sense is a common um, application of that. And nice guy syndrome is hardly, horribly, horribly wrong. It's just that it's mistaken. And so it makes you desperately unhappy because you're constantly trying to fulfill everyone else's expectations. And you're constantly working on this assumption that they don't share. That if you do what they want, they'll give you what you want. And that's not what they're thinking. They don't know why you're doing this thing. They think that you're just doing it because, you know, you're a good guy or whatever. They don't realize that you've got this kind of co- covert contract in your head where they have... They have a, a a clause in there that they've covertly signed that they didn't realize they'd sign, and so what you typically find with nice guys is after a while as as the life script doesn't work, they don't reevaluate to think, "Hey, this isn't working, maybe I should try something else it's It's too deeply ingrained, it's like I have this map, I have to try to follow it and as they do that, they double down like okay i I did everything right but I guess I didn't try hard enough.
0: I just Something need to I be nicer. Harder.
1: I just need to be nicer. I need to be better. I need everyone to like me more. I need to and so they just wear themselves out doing things for other people, essentially ceding all of their power to other people, um feeling completely helpless essentially because nothing that they do works, so they don't feel like they're in control of their lives. And eventually they become extremely resentful and angry because They feel like they did everything right and everyone still isn't giving them what they want, which is often things that they really need. You know, men, uh, to say that men need sex isn't really an overstatement. They do. They're made to have sex often and being denied sex by your wife because you're on the wrong script and she doesn't get what you're doing and you think that she does. And it's just a a recipe for broken marriages and disaster. And so a lot of nice guys end up incredibly bitter and rageful and, if you go on Reddit and look for nice guys, you can see some of that in action. It's kind of hysterical, but also just really depressing.
0: Slightly tragic also.
1: Very tragic. Yeah.
0: yeah, it's interesting. So I want to ask you two questions. I'll ask them one at a time so as not to be too confusing here. But first of all, I was recently reading, I don't know if you've caught it, uh, back in October, Andrew Sandlin was writing about John Piper and pietism in America. And a pietism that, like, doesn't want to be involved in the culture. It's all about personal devotion. But one of the things that Andrew Sandlin wrote in there, he was describing the kind of, you know, why John Piper is, like, easier on Joe Biden because he's nice and he's, you know, he's not like this gruff Elijah Samson type character from scripture, etc. And it really struck me that I, I think maybe some of this nice guy syndrome relates closely to the kind of pietism, um, that has been present in the church. So it's all about your feelings, right? Um, I remember early on, like listening to John Piper, reading Desiring God, and it is all like duty is evil and duty is wicked. Ugh! And what you need to really focus on is what are your affections for Jesus in worship right now? Like how deep and penetrating are your feelings? And you know, like the men in the room are like, uh, yeah, no, I don't think so. So I wonder if you see a connection there between kind of the pietism and the effeminacy. and Maybe that's why nice guys have, it's like, tried to adapt to the church. I don't know. What are your thoughts?
1: Someday I will have a deep enough understanding of our relatively recent history, say 1500 onwards, to be able to untangle the connections between pietism and feminism and nice guy syndrome and antinomianism
0: and Gnosticism
1: <laughs> Gnosticism yes communism Good. thank you communism <laughs> yeah. big one the enlightenment the industrial revolution like the the way that these factors have all kind of com- confluenced confluence isn't a word around each other yeah is it, it's it's like they it's like a, a web that feeds itself yeah So it very much is, pietism is definitely involved because pietism is, as you say, it's about affection rather than about duty, and it leans towards antinomianism rather than towards any kind of serious, uh, taking God's law seriously and applying God's law in all of life. So it's essentially anti-duty. That's one of the reasons that we talk about gendered piety. Uh, Ironically, piety and pietism are extremely the opposite ends of the spectrum. Piety is about your duties to God and man, whereas pietism is about your personal devotions to God alone. And there is a huge stream of, I don't even want to say thought, it's almost, it's more like a, a kind of current in history that starts somewhere around, like it, it, it takes a, a serious form somewhere around the Enlightenment and through the Industrial Revolution and becomes a major force in the 18th and 19th centuries where you see even, (laughs) we were reading Laura Ingalls Wilder last night. We finished the last book. Well, the last book we're going to read, um, The the Happy Golden Years. And at the end, she marries Almanzo and she says, she has to ask this difficult question. She says, you're not going to make me say, obey, are you in the marriage vows? Interesting. No, I wouldn't want you to say that. And she's like, yeah, I don't think I could promise to. I, I don't want, I, I. It's not that I have a problem with obeying you. It's that I have a problem with making a promise that I know I wouldn't be able to keep, and I wouldn't be able to obey someone if my if I really thought that they were wrong. And you know, this is Laura Ingalls Wilder, who is whose mother, by all accounts, was an extremely demure woman. Um, they, ha- they obviously had a really good, strong father. Um, their family was kept together really well by both of the parents. It it was a <laughs> the time that you would think of as, you know, we want to go back there. A lot of Christian patriarchalists yeah. are like, let's go back there. <laughs> well, that wasn't a great time. That was the time that things were coming apart. Yeah. And they had pastor, like their pastor, um, their preacher, was a man who I think he would meet a lot of them today. He was the kind of man who was pro-women rights. As If you read between the lines, he was pro-women's rights. He was obviously some kind of a feminist and he was... On board with this idea of, um, you know, women need to be given more of a voice, and traditional Christianity. um, Saint Paul was kind of a misogynist. Traditional Christianity as a priest woman, so those ideas were circulating heavily around that time. And I mean, how do you think you got to situations like the First World War and um, the the rise of the women's movement in the nineteen sixties without all that groundwork being laid? It doesn't just happen. Right. This stuff had been it was a gradual current that developed for a long time. And I realize I'm rambling and probably getting off the topic, but uh, someday I will be the historian that will be able to answer that question for you.
0: Yeah, no, it it is. I mean, it's like you said, that stuff is such a twisted ball of yarn, but I think it is important today to see kind of at least be aware of things like, okay, you got John Piper over here saying, I shouldn't defend my wife. If a robber was going to kill her.
1: Yeah. Well, that's, Pietism, you need to be aware of pietism and the history of it because it is, it's is—it's not just an error. Yeah. And it's, it's not even that it's a heresy. I wouldn't say that it's a heresy exactly. It's just that it's really, actually dangerous. How do you think that the Christian church managed to be silenced in Nazi Germany? How do you think that it's managed to be silenced today? How, do, how is it that in Canada, nearly every church in Canada is perfectly happy with the police busting down the doors of the one of the few churches that's still worshiping on a Sunday how do yeah. you get there it's pietism that's a major plank a major pillar in how you get there it kills people
0: yeah and I think I think that's a frustrating thing too we it we on a daily basis at the local level um just like trying to interact with people and I know locally we've tried to get other pastors on board to say like, Hey, let's go meet with our elected officials and let's advocate for the rights of the churches and so on and so forth. And like pastor after pastor is just like, no, actually we think that we just, we shouldn't have anything to do with what's going on in the community. Like we should just wait for heaven and, you know, kind of stick our heads in the sand. So it's like, and then you're just watching as, churches stay closed and your rights are being eroded and that people who could be standing up to them aren't, um, has a huge impact, not only in our lives, but for our kids, you know? Indeed. So one of the other questions, this was the second question that, that you brought this up earlier related to nice guy syndrome. Probably the most, it's like the somebody's tell in poker, but a tell for a marriage and counseling, whatever. Um, the, I always ask this like right at the beginning people are like you know oh, we're having problems we're not getting along whatever da 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 and I always say how, mo- how often are you having sex and people are like well what does that matter I was, just tell me the answer
1: what just does it tell matter? me the answer
0: and people are like I don't know like once every four months and I'm like okay yeah asking
1: why does it matter how often I'm having sex in a bad marriage is like asking why does it matter how often I'm going to church in a if I'm having trouble with my religion
0: yeah, no, that's, that's exactly right. I mean, it's, it's 100% to the point, but you know that, I mean, it, it's tied to other things, right? It's a reflection of how the relationship is going overall. And, and you guys have, I mean, you've hit on this, this exact thing. What are, just, just some of the highlights, but what are some of the things that you tell guys? Like, if their marriage is sexless, what do I do? What can they do?
1: The main thing, that
0: the the fundamental principle that we
1: work with is control the controllables, pray about the uncontrollables. God can control the uncontrollables, but you can't. And if you try, it's going to make you sad and miserable and resentful and angry and eventually bitter. And once you become really bitter, it's awfully difficult to combat. But controlling the controllables is really important. And a lot of men don't realize what the controllables are. They think that the controllables are essentially doing all the things that she wants him to do so that she'll do the things that he wants her to do. That's how they think control works. But control doesn't work that way. Control works firstly by focusing on what your actual task is, what your, your duties are, what your mission is, and getting really clear on what you need to be doing, where you want to be going, how you're going to get there, and basically just... Taking small steps in those in that direction, so one of the big issues tends to be men are overweight uh, that's really common. so how are you gonna get in shape if you get in shape, your wife is likely not perfect but likely to follow
0: Yeah, guys are overweight and so that's they're like they don't have the energy is that what you're saying:
1: It's not just that they don't have the energy um, if you're overweight you tend to have a poor image of yourself like deep down like no matter how much um, society tells you that you're beautiful that, are you, you trying know, to
0: fat shame me right
1: now Nan? how dare you <laughs> right now no matter how much society tells you you know that you shouldn't look the way you do that you're ugly fat is ugly and when you know that how do you think it's going to affect your ability to protect, uh, protect project the kind of confidence that tends to be associated with a strong sexual relationship between men and women sexual relationships are driven by polarity a man is attracted to a soft deferential, beautiful woman a woman is attracted to a strong uh, commanding and uh, a competent man so if you are not strong and commanding and competent why do you think that she's going to want to have sex with you? Work on the things that you can control. You can't make her want to have sex with you, but you can make yourself the kind of man that other women are likely to want to have sex with, which will probably include your wife. So that's the, the basic gist of where we go with that. And it, we also do tell them, look, you know, if you start working on stuff like this, it's not just that you're going to become stronger. You know, it's not just a question of making your body stronger. You also need to work on things like your mission and um, what you're what you're trying to achieve. Developing discipline in your life over things like uh, spending time in scripture. Asking your wife if she's spending time in scripture. Asking if you can pray together if you're not praying together. Asking if you can read scripture together if you're um, saying let's you know not necessarily even asking. Um, you, you don't want to just get her permission for this kind of stuff because that kind of perpetuates the problem. But you don't want to be at the beginning just trying to command her either because in a situation where you're not having sex at all usually there is an issue of submission going on and if you try to just say we're going to read the bible now and we're going to do it every night then it tends to exacerbate the problem rather than solve the problem but if you say hey you know i've been reading through genesis and i'd really like to read it a little bit with you and share what i've been learning um that's more likely to get a positive reaction because you're trying to build a relationship rather than just impose a law. And I think that's probably quite key in a lot of cases as well, is a lot of men, when they start especially reading Manosphere stuff, because they have this problem that they're trying to solve and they come across the Manosphere, they read all this stuff about how they need to be a patriarch and how they need to be commanding and have command presence and um, you know what men are for and how women have to submit. And they're like, oh yes, I'm going to make my wife submit, blah, blah, blah. But they haven't developed any of the actual skills required for a leader to get people to submit. A leader isn't just right. someone that people obey. A leader is someone that people follow. So you need to be the kind of person that can actually take them where they want to go. And a lot of men, unfortunately, especially early on, and this is something that we, we try to address with men quite a lot, is just the ability to develop the people skills to get where you want to go. To, be able to be the kind of leader that you want to be because being a leader isn't just being a commander. And so many guys in the manosphere, they're kind of, they're a bit like me. I mean, I, I learned this the hard way. They're semi-autistic engineer brain, you know, that that's how they work. They treat people as problems rather than people.
0: Yeah. I, I think that's really important. Um, it's, it's interesting too, like it, in the people that I've dealt with, I've usually kind of seen two things. I want to get your take, uh, maybe if you've seen one or the other more, but on the one hand, exactly what you're describing, um, you kind of have a guy who's maybe not in a good place. He's overweight, whatever. Um, you know, he's married to somebody who's feminazi or a feminist to some stripe or degree. And so she's refusing to have sex. But, but the other one that I see a lot of actually is like dudes looking at porn he has some, whether it's weight or whatever, he lacks confidence so he looks at porn. Like, his wife is willing, um, but he's just, you know, he's, he's seeking that sexual satisfaction somewhere else. So I'm, I'm curious, like, I'm sure you see both of those, but do, do you see one more than the other?
1: It's hard to say. I don't do nearly as much one-on-one counseling with me as Michael obviously, because he's actually a pastor, whereas I'm just kind of a guy in New Zealand. I don't know that – I think you probably, what you probably find is a lot of the men who are attracted to the Manosphere are the kinds of men who have the first problem, the kind of men who want to have more sex, and they're trying to solve that problem. That's what gets them into the Manosphere in the first place. Yeah. And probably the kinds of men who are actually content with porn over their wives, the kinds of men who just don't want to do the hard work of developing a, a relationship and – doing foreplay and flirting throughout the day and actually having good sex at night. They're the kinds of men who are more likely to be white knights and feminists themselves.
0: Yeah. Yeah, that that makes a lot of sense. So that's the other thing I want to ask you about. Um, you guys have written about white knights, unruly women in the church. Um, unpack that term for me. Uh, I, I'm not sure exactly where it came from. I've read it in Aaron Wren, you guys. Um, what does that mean and why is that important for people to understand
1: white knight is a term that I believe originated re- relatively early in the manosphere because when men started discussing some of the truths around sexuality and the way that men think the way that women think um, a lot of the pushback doesn't come from women it comes from men so there, you'll find a, a particular kind of man who makes it his life goal and really gets validation from standing up for women no matter what. So if you say something that sounds bad about women, he will jump to their defense and he's, he sort of sees himself as this slayer of the dragon rescuing the damsel in distress. So that's basically how his how his ego works. How he gets validation is from other women going, Oh, thank you so much. Thanks, Eric. You, you saved me from this terrible man saying these terrible things. And then he's like, ha ha, look at me, I'm so great, she'll have sex with me now. That's basically how the mentality works. And this is a huge problem in the church because um, essentially white knights and feminists kind of work in this horrible vicious spiral. So the way that church should work is you should have strong men leading, the kinds of men who you would be willing to follow into battle, because church is spiritual battle, and... They should be the kinds of men who are willing to rebuke error and teach the full counsel of God, no matter how unpalatable it may be to the various people in their congregation at the time, um, who will call men and women to account no matter what they're doing and no matter what sex they are. But unfortunately, those kinds of men tend to run afoul of both white knights and women because... The way that women tend to work is they want to try to include anyone who is agreeable regardless of the era. So women, um, because of the way that they're designed, they are focused on building community and establishing harmony and rules. And this is why you, you see such vicious ostracization with women. It's, um, you have to either be in the group and not make waves and be kind of establish a uniformity in the group or you have to be pushed outside because you don't fit and it's causing friction and women don't deal well with any kind of conflict in the way that men do. Men treat conflict as a way of growing. Women treat conflict as something terrifying that needs to be stamped out immediately. So when you get influential women in a church, they want to include anyone who's agreeable, but they want to exclude anyone who's disagreeable regardless of how orthodox they are. So if the orthodoxy is disagreeable to them and the error is agreeable, or the orthodoxy is being presented in a way that's disagreeable, so it's being presented by the kind of prophetic voice that you see with John the Baptist or Jesus or pretty much any of the apostles, then that's the kind of person they're going to exclude because that's the kind of person that ruffles the feathers the wrong way. It's rubbing them the wrong way. And the opposite is true when it comes to false teaching. The kinds of people that tend to be a non-prophetic voice, the kind of people who tend to bring error into the church, the kinds of people that scripture warns us are smooth talkers, that they're um, false teachers come in with smooth words. They deceive with their um, cunning speech, their deceitful ways, that they, they disguise themselves. They don't, they don't come and go, hey, guys, I've got this cool new doctrine. It's completely contrary to scripture. They come in and they, they, they trick you. They're, they're snakes. They're serpents. Right. And so the way that that psychology tends to work out is you get the women saying, we really like the way this guy talks. We really like what he's saying. And he's a false teacher. We really don't like what this guy's saying. He's he was mean. And then the white knights will say, "Oh, that guy was mean to the women. He must be wrong." And they'll attack him because that's how white knights work. It's like we want the validation of the women, so we'll attack this guy. It doesn't matter what he's saying. It doesn't matter what he's doing. It Doesn't matter whether he's right. right or wrong. It's really a question of what matters is the validation of the women. And so that that causes a vicious cycle in the church where the more you uh, the the more false teachers are approved, and the more the orthodox uh, pastors. Um, or shippers, or cowboys or whatever they are, the more they get um knocked down by the white knights, the the greater the problem becomes
0: yeah, so one of one of the interesting things is that, as you're describing this, and I think you guys have talked about this, but obviously a lot of pastors are the white knight in specifically like not preaching to women's sins, not not addressing them, but you know, again, uh, the red pill stuff, those guys were big on this, but like. Father's Day sermons, you blast the men and then Mother's Day sermons because women are just amazing and men are pigs and all that stuff. So that, that's kind of interesting to see how that plays out. But I've often wondered, like, how do you get a white knight to see, I guess, the folly of, of taking that position? And the reason I ask it is because you would think, you know, Hard Men podcast, masculinity, reclaiming biblical masculinity. I had thought when I started this, I am gonna get pushback from feminists, and I am getting pushback from men in the church, and they're the nice guy, and they're the white knight. I'm curious, have you found a good way to convince that guy that this is not a good, this is not a good thing for you?
1: There is definitely no silver bullet, because white knightism and nice guyism are just intricately connected white knights yeah. just are nice guys they they seek their validation primarily from women they've basically been taught from a very early age um starting in often in preschool even before preschool because the way our society is currently set up the way our culture works is women essentially rule your life for all of childhood your father's working so you're raised by your mother until you go to school and then most of your teachers are women and that continues through high school and by the time you get to high school then you want to please the girls because you think that that's going to get the girls and essentially your first 12 to 15 years of life are a conditioning in how to please women how to act in a way that will not upset women and if you do that for 15 years it's really difficult to break that conditioning it it's difficult to even believe that the conditioning is conditioning that it's not just the normal way things are and that is how reality works so it's kind of like having to completely this, this is why it's called the red pill right it's like it's a completely different reality that you have to break out of this matrix as it were and come into the real world and i think there are different vectors for different men part of it comes down to a more general apologetics approach part of it comes down to an approach that i would take in any kind of apologetic encounter where whether it's with a white knight in the church or whether it's with like a rabid atheist or a Muslim or whatever, whatever right. I'm arguing about, whatever I'm trying to convince them of, one of the key questions that I have on my mind is, are you even willing to entertain the possibility that you might be wrong about this? Are you willing to entertain the possibility that what I'm saying is true? Because if you're not, what's the point of having a conversation? There's no possible right. way that we can have a productive discussion. All you're going to be doing is like, you're, in, you're either... You either know so much more than I do, and I'm horribly wrong, or you're just emotionally, obstinately set against this conclusion because you hate it. And that's often the case with white knights. It's often it's not um, a rational issue, it's a, an emotional heart issue, which is the case with Olson. Olsen is essentially a, a problem of, of pride and hatred and the heart.
0: It seems like part of it, too, is if you can make progress with these guys, at some level like especially counseling pastorally cuz they're coming to you cuz something's wrong um so that's kind of an open open door a lot of times sure. but yeah it, basically it's like they need to see that like it's not working you know yeah. what whatever you're doing this whole thing to like you know whether it's to get more sex or whether it's to have a happy marriage and a woman who respects you you find out you know my wife doesn't respect me at all in fact she mothers me and <laughs> dovetail that to another question I want to ask, and and we'll sort of wrap things up in just a second here. But the thing that happened with the Geneva Commons, um, Amy Bird, similar things going on with Beth Moore and the SBC, I mean, all these issues, I don't know how familiar you are with either one of them, hopefully a little, so this question makes some sense, but It seems like the white knightism, the nice guy syndrome, it is just wrapped up in all of this. And particularly, I want to ask you about this, is that uh, Zach Garris told me this, uh, we were talking about it, about how like Amy Bird's book, for example, Recovering from Biblical Womanhood and Manhood. um, He was like, you know, it's interesting because you can tell it was written by a woman because there's like no rational thought in it. It's just like, I don't like how this is and here's some stuff and... Like, she, she doesn't really answer any of the fundamental questions of the texts of um, what, like, Zach brings up in uh, Masculine Christianity, for example. She doesn't really even respond to John Piper and, and Wayne Grudem. You saw a very similar thing happen with Beth Moore. She did not provide rational, logical argumentation, expositional argumentation. What she did was say, well, I'm not going to name names, but I've been misogynistically treated ever since I was in the SBC. And then it's like, there's no answer. So I'm just kind of curious your take on both of those situations um, and if you see it as a a, a form of this white knight, nice guy syndrome stuff going on.
1: The situation with Amy Bird, I'm more familiar with. Okay. And when that went down, the white knightism was like dialed up to 11 you oh, had yeah. hundreds i believe of pastors who had not investigated at all many of whom actually knew people like michael spangler who had been were accused of all these things many of them knew them and must have known that the accusations were at best unlikely that at best it was being exaggerated or twisted in some way and yet right. we completely willing, without talking to him, without uh, investigating for themselves, which the law of God requires. Do, do we condemn a man without hearing what he does? Is it-
0: on Twitter we do. <laughs>
1: we do, yeah. The
0: law of God doesn't apply to Twitter, that's true. No. Your-
1: yeah, they were all willing to sign their names to this open letter and to condemn these men without having, evidently, the faintest knowledge of what was going on. Right. So white knightism is definitely a huge problem and it it's not even an issue of white knightism. It's, it's a larger issue that white knightism is just kind of one manifestation of, which is this idea that the 11th commandment supersedes all the others, that there is an 11th commandment, thou shalt be nice and never not manly, and that it completely overrides all of the actual Ten Commandments. And if you are foolish enough to be unmanly, if you're foolish enough to say something that sounds mean to someone who is willing to screech about it, then you're the bad guy, it doesn't matter what you've done, and no one really needs to know, no one needs to actually investigate the facts so it's all what you might say it's all pathos it's all pathos and ethos to some extent rather than logos, so logos is about the reasons, pathos is about the emotions, and ethos is about the the brand or the reputation and if the If the right person, the right brand is damaged, namely a woman uh, and the, you can get the the right emotions involved, so outrage then the reasons are completely irrelevant. And that's what I, what I saw happening with the Geneva Genevan Collins situation was exactly what happened in my church as well. Just changed the facts around and it was exactly the same reaction.
0: Yeah. It's interesting. And I'll ask you about that as well with your church, but the, that those things are going on, Amy Bird, Beth Moore, et cetera, that's all public. And that's sort of the, you know, macro scale, but at the micro level, you you talk to pastors you talk to elders guys are dealing with this um where there's you know so many situations i mean it's it's almost become laughable an old hat because it happens all the time you know you're like well why did the elder board make that decision you, you start investigating and it it turns out that like one of the elders wives is basically running the whole church because she can't be appeased and she's an emotional train wreck and she's manipulative and a gossip and holding people you know emotional hostage um all those things. It's it's interesting to me because maybe that's one of the turning points for a lot of men and pastors in particular is like, you're gonna have to deal with these women. Um, I think we have this great discomfort culturally dealing with women like Beth Moore because we're like, what we should do is get up and denounce her and call out the unorthodoxy, but instead people feel like, well, you don't hit a girl. Yeah, it's, it's
1: actually a big problem because what we've done is we have gradually allowed women into combat. Not just literally, but spiritually. But then when, yeah, then when they do something that requires them to fight, we try to get them out of it again. So we've got this huge double standard. When, when John MacArthur told Beth Moore to go home, it was like, Every white knight and Feminazi felt a great disturbance in the force. And every white knight tried to immediately do the fighting for her. Oh, so yeah. it, it was an admission that she should be fighting because she put herself and we had allowed her to go into this position where she's engaged in spiritual warfare and then this desperate attempt to try to Um, turn things around so that she wouldn't actually have to do the job that we were saying that she was qualified to do. these why not?
0: Yeah, and that becomes a crazy thing. Like She's allowed to be in the pulpit, so says Russ Moore and a bunch of other people. She's allowed to be in the pulpit, but she doesn't have to fight her own fights. When she makes claims like, Jesus and Paul don't agree or insinuates it because she's too sloppy to actually do the exegetical work because it's not there for one reason, um, then, then we're going to stand up for her and she just and – th- and this is kind of what I was thinking with Amy Bird too. It's like, where did she go? Yeah.
1: So Amy Bird, you, you see the way that people – even the, the gentlest critiques. If you critiqued a man who wrote a book in that way, no one would think anything of it. they think, wow, that was a really gentle critique. That guy should have been way more aggressive because these arguments are terrible. And and you would expect the man, the author, to respond and give arguments in reply. But when it's a woman, when it's any bird, the slightest critique is regarded as an attack on her rather than what would be with a man, which puts the lie to the idea that women can do anything men can do, and women and men are interchangeable in this respect. And she's not required to give any kinds of arguments because we're another weaker vessel, and we know that women don't necessarily um, do as well in that kind of conflict.
0: Yeah, if you want if you want to step into a man's world and you want to put these ideas out there that challenge the historicity of scripture and um, you know orthodox faith, then you ought to be prepared. I mean, even you guys like if somebody critiques your book, you shouldn't be like, "My, feelings <gasps> oh are hurt. no,
1: how dare you!" <laughs> I mean. We're, we're building up right now. We're, we're working ourselves up right now to deal with all of the pushback we're going to get when this book comes out.
0: Oh, exactly. Okay. So now, and I want to ask you in closing, um, I read all of your, uh, well, at least the stuff that you, that you put out, uh, I think the stuff that was made available about your church situation in New Zealand. So I want to ask you about that. A lot of people might say, and, and I've heard this charge leveled at me i've heard it leveled at a lot of guys because look if you're standing on me- biblical sexuality right now um you're going to run into problems with your local church right um but a lot of people are saying okay you know you're, you're just a disagreeable guy um you, these people are just troublemakers uh i so i kind of want to get a feel for like why is that not the case and, and for people who don't know like what happened in in that situation right
1: The reason that it's not the case, the reason that it actually does matter that we stand on biblical sexuality and we don't pretend that it's just a minor issue or a secondary doctrine, is kind of twofold. The first is that it really does connect to far too much in scripture to be considered on the same level as something like baptism, which is much less clear in scripture and is not something which... Historically, has even been agreed on by the church um, in a lot of centuries, and is obviously not going to have the same kind of ramifications for the rest of life. So it's not a question of ongoing piety. the The idea that sexuality is just a a minor issue is really to say that living as a man is not a is a minor issue. Living as a woman is a minor issue. That we don't actually have specific duties as men and women to God, and that. The fatherhood of God is not important. It, it, if you follow it to its logical conclusion, everything unravels because God is father and he, Jesus is son. God is not mother and Jesus is not daughter. And so all, all of uh, gender piety actually comes from that. So once you start unraveling at one end, it is going to end up at the other end at some point. Just as if you unravel from the Godward end, everything is going to uh, come and unravel in our lives as well. You're going to end up with lawlessness here. You start with lawlessness here, you'll end up with lawlessness in your theology of God. You start with lawlessness in your theology of God, you'll end up with lawlessness in creation as well. It works both ways. So that's the the kind of theological rationale. But the, the more basic and practical rationale is simply that when the culture is attacking something specific in scripture, if you are gung-ho fighting all of the battles of the reformation and LARPing every battle of history that christians have fought and already won while pretending that the people fighting the actual fight of the day are being the bad guys then you're just you're arguably insane you're certainly deceived or deceiving right. and that's what's really going on is christians today are abject cowards they are completely under the thumb of the fear of the world. And they have replaced, in many cases, the state of God. Uh, God with the state, I should say. So in their theology, they claim to worship God. But when you look at who they obey, it comes down to what does the state say? What, what are people going to do to me? And that's a huge problem. And if you're not standing on sexuality, that's the mentality that you are taking and that you're propagating. So that's, uh, that's, I think that's the first half of your question. Did you have more of your question? Where did you go?
0: Yeah, no, that is the first half. The second part was just what had actually happened in, in your right. local church. And I don't remember, you, did they excommunicate you?
1: They did. They didn't call it an excommunication because, as I say, the, the modern Christian is a coward and they won't even obey scripture on that kind of thing. They, they want to appear nice and right. like they, they didn't do that. Um, but what they did was they excommunicated me. And it, it's difficult to give a summary of all of the reasons that that happened, what, what went down. Fundamentally, there were two key issues. The first was antinomianism, which is uh, what my previous pastor, Ryan Vinton, who I like to call Lion Ryan, after the, oh, the me- methods of Trump, he was and is an antinomian. He doesn't really believe that the law of God is actually important for um, pretty much anything except for convicting of sin. So he doesn't hold to a standard reform view of the law. And he, if you tell him that sanctification is necessary for uh, going to heaven, that sanctification is necessary for salvation, he will say that you are corrupting the gospel and you have a different gospel to him. So the fact that the Bible explicitly says that sanctification is necessary for salvation is kind of a problem for him. And I pointed this out. I had done a fair amount of writing on this topic and I got into some discussions with him because I knew that he was going to disagree. I didn't realize how bad he was at the time. And I hadn't actually investigated antinomianism as antinomianism at the time, or I would have been much better equipped to deal with the, the situation then. Having now read Mark Jones's book, Antinomianism, uh, everything has become very clear. But right. at the time, I was just like, well, this is a strange thing for him to think. This is a strange disagreement. Why doesn't he think this? And so I tried to convince him, and uh, it got to this ridiculous level where he just wasn't engaging with the arguments, and he would repeatedly just drop it once I demonstrated my position from Scripture and refuted his. And it got to the point where I had to compile a, a list of all of the things that I had said and the way that I had got them from actual Reformed theologians. So I had this big list of ref- quotes from Reformed theologians to prove that the things that I was saying that he said were heretical were not things that I made up. They were things that I had read from other Reformed theologians from the Reformation onward. Not not like minor out outward guys, like fringe guys. Um, like he would constantly bring up... Um, who was it? One of the American... Kind of popular American uh, Puritan who... I can't remember his name now. He had some pretty wacky ideas, but some good ones as well. Um, he would bring him up constantly because he was actually an antinomian, an antinomian, um, in a different way to Ryan. And he he was like, "Oh, well, that's the kind of thing that that guy would have said." Well, no, that that isn't the kind of guy I'm reading. I'm reading guys like Kelvin and, and Rutherford and um, Dabney and, and Lewis and so on. So I put this together and I sent it through to a couple of the other guys in the church who were theologically apt. Uh, so that that included my. My previous pastor, who is still in church, and another guy who lives nearby, who is studying to uh, get his MDiv, and they both agreed that my position was orthodox from uh, orthodox and reformed, and so I sent this through to Ryan and said, yeah, "These guys have agreed that my position is reformed." Ryan took this document, didn't talk to me about it at all. He's never talked to me about it. Never acknowledged its existence to me. Um. He, he took this document to them and tried to convince them that it was wrong um, for reasons. He didn't actually give any reasons. He was just like, yeah, it looks like they're saying that, but they're not really saying it And then I didn't hear anything for a couple of months. And then I was really involved with It's good to be a man. And we started to have more disagreements. And he basically said, look, you're going to have to change your ways or leave the church. And I was like, I'm not leaving the church because I'm not the one in, in error you are. And Romans 16, 17 says, I beseech you, brethren, mark them that are causing the divisions and occasions of stumbling, contrary to the doctrine which ye learned, and turn away from them. So I'm not the one that should be uh, (laughs) leaving the church here. If anyone should be leaving the church, it's you guys. And he basically said, look, we're going to take action against you. And then apparently went fishing for the kinds of stuff that you see happening with Michael Spangler in the Geneva Commons. So anything that would look mean, anything that would look like I was being a dick online, anything that could be used um, to work the women, especially into uh, like, how could he say that? That's horrible. Um, So anything on sexuality that a normal person hasn't heard before and sounds extreme, as a lot of red pill stuff does, anything that could be used as a kind of soundbite. And you would say, he said this, and they're like, how could that possibly be, you know, So that was all used against me. And he compiled this big document and he didn't send me most of the evidence he was going to use in advance. And he set up this big um, meeting and showed all these quotes on the screen, which I hadn't had time to prepare any kind of context to go back and say, here's what I was saying. This is why I said it. Um, So just like hammered the congregation with this for like an hour and a half, one after another. Look how terrible all this is. Look at this terrible stuff that he's saying. Um, Anything that could be used. And it got like... Ridiculous things. For example, in one article I had written on how it's an abomination for women to bear the sword, right? He didn't actually use that, which I thought maybe would be more effective. Um quite a lot of feminists in our congregation. But what he did was he took a <laughs> quote in which I had said that I, I was talking about how my views were considered extreme even in a conservative frozen chosen church. Right. And Frozen Chosen is just a a sort of affectionate way of talking about the Reformed among the Reformed themselves, as far as I know. That's how we use it.
0: Yeah, I've only ever heard it in Calvinist
1: churches. Right. I learned the expression from my previous pastor, who used it affectionately of Reformed people, in contradistinction to charismatic, happy-clappy people. And happy-clappy is like a, a very, very mild affectionate insult. He used this as an example of how I was demeaning the church and had a sneering tone toward our whole church. I was talking about the church when I said this. And one one person stood up and was like, well, uh, do we have any evidence that he was actually talking about our church? And I had to stand up and say, yes, I was talking about our church. Have you ever (laughs) heard anyone use this term in a a demeaning way? Like, this is not sneering. But yeah, that was basically how he painted everything, is twist it into the worst possible um, way that you could think of it even to the point of saying the opposite of what I was actually saying. Right. So I was given no opportunity to respond. At the very end, enough people were at this meeting who knew my actual positions that they kicked up a stink and said, non needs to be given a chance to respond to this. But of course, by that stage, it was lunchtime and everyone was really tired. And I was like, there's no way that anyone's going to listen to me even if I could go through all of this evidence and accurately rebut it on the fly. It's just not going to happen. And so they said, well... I guess he can email a response to the people that want to hear it, but only the people that want to hear it. So so basically denying the necessity of the people who are going to be making a decision to actually investigate the evidence for themselves, completely contrary to scripture, which demands that the people who are doing the judging are inquiring diligently into it. So I formulated this email response and I, I got some feedback before I sent it out because it was just so ridiculously long. It was so much evidence that I had to respond to, and no one's going to read it all. So I tried to create a summary that basically dealt with the major points and pointed out how ridiculous it all was and how I was clearly not in the wrong and so on. But um, no one really wanted to to read that. Uh, There were a few people in the church who were basically already on my side. They read the document that, like, yes, this is obviously right. The the rest of the people in the church were already well in Ryan's pocket and had already made up their minds and didn't want anything to do with it. And so the second meeting, I petitioned them that I could speak in my own defense. They had a congregational vote. So this tells you how bad the congregation is. The congregational vote just failed. So they did not let me speak in my own defense. And my wife Wait, there to had to, speak- to be a,
0: a congregational vote to determine if someone could... It's a congregational, a congregationally run church. So they thought that since the congregation would
1: be making the decision on, on whether to excommunicate me or not they should have at least have a congregational vote on whether they would listen to my side of the story but the majority of the congregation decided that that was unnecessary and um yeah so my wife had to defend me in my absence which needless to say was the cruelest thing i've ever seen anyone do to a woman in my life these white knights hate women um is one of the things i've realized they they really Interesting hate me. um the the second meeting was basically just a bunch of people getting up and talking about how toxic I was. There was no examination of the evidence. Um, there was no going over anything that I'd written. Um, you know, nothing was discussed in, in addition to, uh, in any kind of respect of the actual facts of the matter. It was really just a case of smearing my name enough for everyone to decide that they were going to vote yet. And so then they voted and I was voted out. Uh, they needed to get 75% and they got 76 and I was waiting next door to hear the verdict, but um, no one actually had the courage to come and tell me to my face. So they emailed me afterwards. No. <laughs> yeah.
0: So that's what happened. You had, you had to get an email saying that you're
1: you yeah. out. I, I didn't even get an email saying that I was out. I got an email saying they could no longer, if I would not repent, they could no longer support my profession of faith. Oh. Yeah.
0: That's, that's ouch. Yeah. Yeah. It's interesting too, because the, um, well, first of all, I have to say I was, I was pretty disappointed because I saw the thing that you had posted and I heard excommunication and I was like, oh, this is going to be some really juicy scandal. And I read it and I was like, what the, this is boring. This is lame. Yeah. It was like, I, there was really no issue. Um, there was no, I mean, other than the antinomianism, but there was no like, I was hoping like, oh, non-struck an elder in the face at a fiery meeting. Nothing.
1: <laughs> well, I will, I will tell you that I don't know how it would have gone if I had had my druthers. So the way that I had intended to deal with it was when I first got the email back from Lion Ryan about how he was going to have to proceed with Matthew 18 and pursue charges against I had intended to aggressively pursue charges against him because I was fed up. With his bullshit and i was counseled by numerous other men in the church who i have come to realize were simply naive that i should try to think the best of him and i should take a more gentle approach and all that kind of thing so i wanted to i wanted to show that i was willing to take counsel because one of the issues was people are going to think that i'm just being mean that i'm this big bombastic guy who just does his own thing and doesn't listen to anyone So I was like, well, I'm between a rock and a hard place here. I'm pretty sure these guys are wrong and this is the wrong way to go. But if I don't do it, then it's going to look like I'm just being an ass. So (laughs) I don't know what would have happened otherwise. And I think that's important is that I want to emphasize myself that I don't tell this story just because I'm uh, angry about what happened. Um, I'm I'm fairly at peace with what happened. There's still some emotions, mostly about the betrayals that happened with some of my friends and so on. That still hurts a bit. But the reason that I tell this story and the reason I think that it's important for people to hear this, and in fact, I'm writing a book about it um, with my wife, is because, as you say, this is happening everywhere. You're going to be facing these men in nearly any church you go to, and you have to know how to be prepared. I wasn't. I was more prepared than most people, and I was still completely unprepared. I really didn't take seriously until it actually happened the what Scripture says about how false teachers work and how smooth they are and um, how they turn people's hearts.
0: Yeah. And, and, and use scripture against you in a way that's unhelpful. So it's like, you know, you have a false teacher who will always point back to, well, you need to submit to your leadership, you know, or you need to believe the best about me. You're not believing the best. Meanwhile, they're using that time to shore up their strategy for annihilation. So um, just kind of top level, I guess, but as you look at that situation, what would you tell to somebody if they're going through it? Maybe some things that have helped you um, to, to get through that process, things that you've learned? Well, one of the key, uh,
1: here are two really key principles. The first is to actually take seriously what people do. Scripture says that out of the heart, the heart, the mouth speaks. And by extension, out of the heart, all of the behavior comes. So yeah. when you look at someone's behavior and it's just consistently deceitful or it's consistently working in a direction that you can see is not in your best interests. It's just dumb to keep trying to be charitable. That's not smart, that's not wise, that's naive.
0: Yeah, you have to trust you have to trust your eyes. Right, trust
1: your eyes. Don't trust what they're saying. People lie. Scripture says that false teachers will lie. You have to listen to what they're saying behind the scenes and what they're doing in front of you, not what they're trying to convince everyone of. So that's the the first thing. And the second thing is when you start to head down that trajectory like you're kind of feeling like something's not quite right you need to immediately confront something which you think is wrong so for instance when ryan first came to our church one of the things that he did is he removed david from the eldership david was my former pastor he's also my father-in-law and he basically said to david i I think you need to step down as pastor and david at the time was like oh that It's a bit of a strange thing to ask. It's kind of seems not good. It's better to have more elders because we only had three elders at that point. So having having him step down meant only two elders, and the other elder is just a yes man. He's useless. That was kind of a big red flag. But David didn't want to cause trouble, and he didn't want to. um, He wanted to give the new pastor some space, and so he was like, "All right, I guess I'll step down, and we'll see how things go." The, the other thing that he did when he arrived was I used to chair meetings at the church when we had business meetings. And he asked me to stop doing that so he could do it. And I was like, well, don't you at least want to sit through one business meeting where I chair it so that you can see how it's done before you take over? And he was like, no, no, you just, you stepped up. So we have it on very good authority that he was from the beginning trying to get me out because he didn't like me, he had some issue with me, um presumably had heard about me or something like that. Um And so he'd been kind of developing his strategy for doing that for two or three years. but. From the very beginning, I thought, you know, that it's a bit weird trying to chair meetings. Normally, the pastor doesn't yeah. chair the meetings. He doesn't even know what he's doing. Why would he ask me to sit down? At the time, I should have said, no, I think it's more appropriate if I continue to chair the meetings. And I think it's appropriate that David remains in the eldership. If David had remained in the eldership, none of this would have happened. And what, what I've learned from this experience is that capitulation, essentially, um, is what it was, becomes habit-forming. Once you started down a road of being willing to give in on small things, it becomes increasingly difficult to give in on big things. And this isn't just in my situation. You see this everywhere. You see this in our culture at large. You know, first, it's stay home for two weeks. Okay, that's not that big a deal, I guess. Then it's a lockdown for months. And by that stage you've given up your right to say no, we have a right to come out of our houses because you've already given it up. You've already said, okay, it's fine if you let us st- if you make us stay at home. After that it's masks. And then you say, well, it's only a piece of fabric over the face, it's not that big a deal. Well, yeah, in in itself it's not that big a deal, but where is it hitting? What path are you hitting down? What are you giving up by doing this? You need to count the cost. Next minute, mandatory vaccines. So really important that you develop a habit of gentle confrontation rather than just letting things slide. And that's hard. That's, that's probably the main reason that most of this stuff happens It's just because people don't want to make a fuss about something that doesn't seem like a big deal. Right. And so they, they go against what they know is probably the best thing for the sake of getting along and hoping that nothing further happens. But something further is going to happen. That's just how these things work. You, as the saying goes, if you give an inch, they'll take a mile. So being willing to stand firm on small issues means that big issues don't develop. Whereas once big issues do develop, it makes you look like you're the bad guy if you start standing firm because, well, you were never like this before. What, what's the problem now, you know? Manipulators yeah. are really good at turning that
0: kind of thing against you. I think that's really huge too. And, you know, A, trusting your eyes and then B, offering an appropriate level of pushback from the beginning um, so that, yeah, it, it it's only going to get harder the more that you give in over time. And I think you're right. I think it's a parable for all of our life and not just, you know, your particular church situation, but for any guy, uh, whether it's your marriage, whatever it is, like just firmly, confidently, you don't have to be a jerk, but stand your ground, uh, especially on these things where my wife and I call those, by the way, we just call them like red flags. Like, and, and every time I've ignored a red flag, like where something really made me feel uneasy. No, no, no. I'm sure that they didn't mean that. No, no, no. I'm sure it was great. Like later on down the road, my wife and I both were like, I don't know why we ignored that. I mean, it was there for a reason. You know, the intuition was, was correct. 100%. Well, Nan, I appreciate it, man. Thanks for coming on the show. I want to, and we will link to uh, It's Good to Be a Man in the show notes, but any other places you would direct people. To check out your work.
1: Well, obviously we've got our website, and we have a presence on Facebook, and Michael's on Twitter at this is Foster. Um, I'm on Gab at NonTenant, and I have a website of my own, which is non.com. So you can check Norm. us out in all those places, and anywhere good podcasts are syndicated.
0: Awesome, awesome. Well, I appreciate it, Non. Thanks so much, man.
1: Thank you, Eric. It's been a pleasure.
0: Until next time, men, stay frosty, fight the good fight, act like men.